morning. Good to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to James chapter 5. If you're new with us this morning, first of all, welcome. Glad that you're here with us. We are making our way through a series on the book of James. We've reached the penultimate sermon here. We've got two more to go. So this morning and the next week, James 5, 13 to 18 is where we are this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll get to it here. Father, we do want to stop and pray. It is a privilege to be able to come to you in prayer. So we just want to come before you this morning and acknowledge that we need your help. When we open your word, we know that nothing will happen of any consequence unless you are at work. And so we just come to you humbly here before we dive into James chapter 5 this morning and we ask for your help. We pray that you would still our hearts before you that we might have ears to hear. God, we pray that you would do away with any distractions that might be in our hearts this morning or even might be in this room this morning. We just pray that you would help us to hear from your word gladly and with great expectation. And Father, we do pray that by the end of our time together this morning in James chapter 5, we would have a greater desire to run to you in prayer. Oh Lord, we pray that you would minister to us through your word this morning, that you would encourage us, challenge us, convict us, that you'd point us to the hope found in Jesus Christ. So Lord, please help us this morning. We desperately need it. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, some things in life are both incredibly simple and yet exceedingly complex at the same time. Take, for example, the word the. We use the word the all the time. In fact, it's the most frequently used word in the English language, accounting for about 4% of all the words that we write or speak. But have you ever tried to define the word the? It's not quite as easy as you might think it would be, because the way that we use the word the is actually pretty complex. The dictionary itself lists almost two dozen different ways that the word the can be used in a sentence. And the way in which we use the word the often seems very arbitrary. As one linguist put it, why do we say, I love the ballet, but not I love the cable TV? Why do we say, I have the flu, but not I have the headache? Why do we say, winter is the coldest season, and not winter is coldest season? I'm sure there are probably grammatical answers to all those questions, but I have no idea what those answers are. And that's the thing about the word the. It's simple enough for a two-year-old to use correctly in a sentence, but it's complex enough that even skilled linguistic experts have a hard time explaining why we use the word the way that we do. And in that way, the word the is a bit of a paradox. It's both incredibly simple and yet exceedingly complex at the same time. But the word the is not alone in possessing this dual simplicity slash complexity. Many things in life are both simple and complex at the same time. And the topic of our passage today is certainly one of those things. In James 5 verses 13 to 18, James turns his attention to the topic of prayer. And at some level, the topic of prayer and James' instruction regarding prayer is beautifully simplistic. Quite simply, as those who believe in a sovereign God, we should be people who regularly and frequently and urgently pray. We communicate with God and we ask for help. The application of James' teaching on prayer from our passage today, and for that matter, the application of the Bible's teaching as a whole on prayer is very simple. We should pray in all circumstances. In every moment, our first instinct should be to cry out to God. That's simple enough for a two-year-old to understand. What do you do when you need help? You ask God for help. But having said that, while the topic of prayer is indeed beautifully simplistic, it is also incredibly complex. And our passage today reflects that reality too. In James 5, 13 to 18, things get pretty complicated pretty quickly. 
James starts by encouraging us to pray in any and every circumstance. That's simple enough. But then he starts to talk about prayer as it relates to physical healing. And that opens up a world of complexity and poses a series of very difficult questions. So in James 5, 13 to 18, we encounter both the beautiful simplicity of prayer, but also the incredible complexity of prayer. And my hope this morning is that we will be able to navigate those dual realities in a way that encourages us to pray, but also in a way that helps us to better understand the true nature of prayer. In other words, my hope this morning is that we would embrace the beautiful simplicity of prayer, while at the same time having the courage to wade into the complexities of prayer. So that said, let's get to it. James 5, 13, 18. If you're physically able, if you want to stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word. We're reading in James 5. Standing is just a simple way we can remind ourselves that this is God's word. And as, as such, it's due our attention. The words will be on the screen here. You can follow along that way. Or you can follow along as I read or you can follow along in your own Bibles. But the word of God says this beginning in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So I think the overall message of what we just read in James 5, 13 to 18 is indeed fairly straightforward this morning and beautifully simplistic. And here's the message. Because prayer is powerful and effective, our first instinct in every circumstance should be to pray. In just six verses here, prayer or some variation of prayer is mentioned eight times. And it's not as if those mentions of prayer are concentrated in just one or two verses. Every single verse in this passage mentions prayer. So it's not hard to figure out the application this morning. We should pray. If you leave here this morning and you're not motivated to pray more often, then you have missed the beautiful simplicity of this message or of the message of this passage And that message, again, is because prayer is powerful and effective, our first instinct in every circumstance should be to pray. Whether in times of plenty or times of want, whether it be for physical needs or spiritual needs, we should pray. But as simple as that message is, as I mentioned earlier, this is also an incredibly complex passage too. Because in it, James touches on some really difficult things as it relates to prayer. He forces us to think about the role of prayer in physical healing. And that way, he he forces us also to confront the reality of unanswered prayer. He also obliges us to think about the intersection of sin and sickness. Is some sickness a result of sin? He even causes us to ask this question. Are there certain types of people that are perhaps more effective in praying than others? In other words, in this passage, James is making us ask some really complex questions. So again, my goal this morning is simply this. I don't want to lose sight of the beautiful simplicity of this passage. We should pray. But at the same time, I don't want to ignore the incredible complexity of this passage because what James teaches here in verses 13 to 18 is indeed complicated. So to keep sight of the beautiful simplicity while also acknowledging the incredible complexity, here's how I want to structure our time together this morning. I'm going to ask five follow-up questions of this particular text. 
And in doing so, my hope is that we embrace the simplicity of the call to pray while at the same time wading into the complexities of prayer. So here are the five questions. When should we pray? What should we expect when we pray? Why is prayer powerful and effective? Who should pray? And how should we pray for sick people? All right, those are the five questions. So let's just dig into number one here. Question number one, when should we pray? When should we pray? The short answer to that question, which we'll flesh out here in more detail, is simply this, is that we should pray at all times and in all circumstances. Our first instinct should always be prayer. And that's one of the things that James reminds us of from the very beginning of this passage. Look at verse 13 again. He says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So whether in times of difficulty, suffering, or in times of great blessing and cheerfulness, James instructs us our first instinct should be to pray. If you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing songs of praise, which is just another way of praying, in this case in the form of song. This makes sense, by the way. If God is in control of every last thing that happens on the face of this planet, and he is, then regardless of what circumstances we find ourselves in, we should pray. In James 1, James encouraged us to count it all joy when we, make, when we meet trials of various kinds because God is using those trials to produce something in us, namely steadfastness. In that same chapter, James also reminds us every good gift comes from above. So whether trial or blessing then, what we can say with confidence is this, God is doing something in our lives. And so it makes sense then that in every circumstance, our first instinct would be one of prayer. This need for instinctual prayer in all circumstances is something that's only confirmed by the rest of the passage. In verse 14, James encourages those who are sick to turn to prayer. In verse 16, James encourages us to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. So if you were to put the passage together, you would say it simply like this. If we're suffering, we should pray. If we're cheerful, we should pray. If we're sick, we should pray. If we're in sin, we should pray. Whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, we should be quick to cry out to God. Our first instinct should be prayer. But sadly, and we know this, this is often not the case. Instead, we have a tendency to rely on ourselves. Rather than praying in times of trouble, we try to dig ourselves out of the hole. For example, if you're in a medical situation, your first instinct often is to think, well, what doctor do I need to reach out to? Or, or what insurance issue do I need to talk about? Or, or what do I need to do to get the ball rolling on this? Rather than thinking first, what do I need to do in terms of prayer? Now, I'm not saying there's not a place for those other things, but my point is that, that instead of running to prayer first, we often run to what can we do? Now, on the other end of the spectrum, when things are going well, rather than giving thanks to God in times of plenty, we tend to oftentimes focus on the blessing itself, or we tend to give credit to ourselves for our good fortune. The point is that in both times of plenty and times of want, our instinct is not usually to look upward first, but instead our instinct is to look inward, or in some cases outward towards circumstances or other people. But if we're trusting in Christ completely, and if we believe that God is sovereign, and if we're convinced that he hears our prayers and he cares, then our first response in times of plenty or want should be the same. It should be one of prayer. Now, when I think of people who best exemplify this, I think of my wife. Back in, our sermon on, or back in a sermon on James 1, I told you that in 2022, our son Dawson had to be flown by emergency medical transport from Children's Hospital in Omaha to Colorado Children's Hospital in Denver. 
In that same sermon, I also told you that our friend Adam Marshall, who happens to be an elder here at the church, ended up flying my wife to Denver on his plane in the middle of the night since we couldn't ride with Dawson. But what I didn't tell you about on that particular sermon is something that happened on the plane flight on the way to Denver with Tony and Adam. Now, Adam's little plane has four tanks of gas. Normally, if he's flying with other passengers, Adam makes sure that all four tanks are full because if a tank runs out of gas, the plane completely shuts off for about five seconds, and then it switches to another tank, and that has a tendency to frighten passengers for good reason, right? If you're flying along in a little plane and all of a sudden the engine cuts out completely, that's a little bit scary, especially if you don't know that it's coming. Well, for whatever reason, probably because we called him at 2 a.m. in the morning, Adam didn't fill up all four tanks of gas that night. Now, he knew he had enough gas to get there. This was not a safety issue. It's just that he didn't have enough gas in the first tank to make it without switching over to another tank. And so as they were flying along in the darkness, and Adam has since told me that night was particularly unnerving as there was no moonlight of any sort. It was pitch dark. And so as they were flying along in the darkness, the engine suddenly turned off. Now, Adam, of course, being an experienced pilot, immediately knew the gas tank was just switching over. I'm sure did not panic at all. But my wife did not know this. All she knew is that they were flying along, and all of a sudden, it was not just pitch dark, but it was also deathly silent because the engine was just gone. Now, I don't know what you would do in that circumstances, but there are a lot of things you could do, right? You could panic and start screaming. You could stretch your vocabulary and use some choice words you might need to apologize for later. You could start asking questions of the pilot. But to hear Adam tell this story, none of that happened that night. Instead, the moment the engine shut off, without skipping a beat, my wife immediately started praying. Now, they say you can tell a lot about what a person actually believes based on how they respond in times of adversity and crisis, and I think that's probably true. I suspect it's also true that you can tell a lot about what a person actually believes based on how they respond when the plane engine cuts out in the middle of the night. And for my wife, it's clear what she actually believed in that moment. There is only one place to go, up. Her first instinct was prayer. Now, my wife would be the first person to tell you there have been plenty of times where she's failed to pray first. In fact, I had to talk Tanya into letting me use this story because she didn't want to paint a picture that's not always true. So I just want you to be aware there are times where my wife does not always instinctively pray. But more than anyone I know, her first instinct is prayer. And what I'm arguing this morning, more importantly, what I think James is arguing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that all of us should adopt this same mindset. Are you suffering? Pray. Are you cheerful? Pray. Are you sick? Pray. Are you struggling with sin? Pray. Is school hard? Pray. Are you in conflict with your friends or family members? Pray. Is marriage challenging right now? Pray. Are you concerned about your finances? Pray. Are things going well? Sing songs of praise. Whatever circumstances you find yourself in, your first instinct should be prayer. So that's the answer to the first question. When should we pray? At all times and in all circumstances, our first instinct should be prayer. Question number two, what should we expect when we pray? Again, I think the short answer to that question that we'll flesh out here in more detail is that we should expect God to answer our prayers. Now here's where we begin to wade into the complexity of prayer. Obviously, there are times when we pray and we don't receive the answer that we were necessarily hoping for. In that way, it feels a little bit naive of me to say that we should expect God to answer our prayers when we do pray because that's not always our experience. I think the clear teaching of this passage is that we should have an expectation that God answers our prayers. We should pray in faith, believing that he will hear and do something. Look at the way prayer is described in this passage, starting in verses 14 and 15. 
Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. And then verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now again, we want to acknowledge there's some serious complexity here. And there's some serious questions in this particular part of the passage about healing and sin and sin's connection with sickness. And in due order, we'll try to address more of that complexity. But in the midst of that complexity, we just need to let the passage speak. Verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. The Lord will raise him up. Verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. These verses strongly imply that God does answer prayer and that we should have an expectation that he will hear and answer when we do pray. Now, we might be quick to put some caveats on that statement, and I think there are some caveats that need to be put on that statement, but we can't let those caveats melt away what James is communicating here. We need to be reminded to boldly approach our Father with an expectation that he will hear and he will respond. It seems to me that many of us, and I would put myself in this category, often avoid praying bold prayers because we're afraid God won't answer or we just assume that he will not answer. And so we end up praying timid, cautious prayers. God, if it's your will and you so desire, please bring healing to my friend. But if you don't do that, we'll still trust you. Now, there's some theological truths in that type of prayer. And certainly those prayers are are correctly acknowledging that there's some caveats to our prayer life. And again, we're going to address those caveats here in just a second. But let's not lose sight of the fact that there are times where we should just pray boldly. And we should just ask God plainly, God, heal my friend. We don't need to caveat ourselves to death when it comes to prayer. We need to learn to pray boldly and with expectation. As James told us earlier in this book, oftentimes we don't have because we don't ask. We need to learn to see God as a loving father who cares and not as a prayer robot who only has a certain quota of prayers he's willing to answer. No, he is a father who cares, and this should change the way we approach him. I mean, think about the way a two-year-old approaches their parents. Two-year-olds do not put caveats on their requests. Have you ever known a two-year-old who has handled requests like this? Okay, mom, dad, mommy, daddy, whatever they say. I know that you have a lot of things to take into account today, and I know that you're thinking about my overall health, which I really appreciate. I know there are budget factors that we need to take into consideration, but would you please be willing to consider a request for ice cream? And if not, that's fine. I totally trust you. Is that what two-year-olds do? Absolutely not. That is not what two-year-olds do. They ask boldly and unashamedly. Mommy, daddy, can I have some ice cream? Now, as a parent, you may or may not say yes to that request, but you're not offended by a two-year-old being direct and bold. It's exactly what you would expect. And so my encouragement to us is, church, let's be bold in our prayers. Let's cry out to our Heavenly Father, and let's expect that He wants to answer our prayers. Now, of course, as I alluded to, there are some caveats here. God is not a cosmic genie. He's operating the scope of eternity, and he knows what's best for us from an eternal perspective. And thus, in the same way that parents may lovingly decide not to give ice cream to their two-year-old, God may sometimes have a better plan for us and thus not respond in the way that we'd hoped. And as it relates to healing, which is the topic of this passage, we always have to remember that God chooses when and how and who he's going to heal. Sometimes Jesus healed everyone that the crowd brought to him. 
Other times, he would ignore swarms of sick people and heal only one. God heals who he wants and when he wants, and sometimes he waits to heaven to heal. He's not a genie, but he does want us to pray boldly. And so that puts us in a little bit of tension here. As one commentator put it, somehow in our prayers, we must find a balance between never expecting God to heal and requiring him to heal on demand. And therein lies the complexity, doesn't it? We want to strike the right balance. We want an expectation that God will heal, but not see him as a cosmic genie. Now in a church like ours, which is rightly afraid of veering into the health and wealth gospel, Health and wealth gospel is the false gospel that if you believe in Jesus, your life will be easy, you'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy. Everything you want, he'll always give to you right away. We fear that, and because we fear that, my fear for us is that we often end up on the ditch on the other side, that we don't expect anything of God, and that we pray consistently timid and cautious prayers. But let us remember the words from earlier in the book of James. Sometimes you don't have because you don't ask. And let us remember also what James is implying here. If we pray, God answers. So let's be a church that prays big prayers and expects God to hear and answer, and then we act accordingly. As the famed missionary William Carey once put it, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Let's not be afraid of unanswered prayer, but instead let us pray boldly and with expectation that he hears and he cares. So that's the second question. What should we expect when we pray? We should expect God to hear and answer our prayers. Question number three, why is prayer powerful and effective? In verse 16, James states that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. But why is that? Again, the short answer, prayer is powerful simply because of who we are praying to. Throughout this passage, James both directly, sometimes, and subtly in other cases reminds us, God is ultimately the one who makes our prayers effective. In verse 14, he talks about praying over a sick person in the name of the Lord. Implied in that is that the Lord is the one who's going to do something about it. Verse 15, he says the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. In this case, I think we're talking about being raised up out of their bed, walking again. And the point is, it's the Lord who does it. In verses 17 and 18, James talks about Elijah praying and the rain stopping. And then Elijah praying again, the heavens giving rain. Clearly, Elijah had no actual power to stop rain or to make it rain. It was God who made his prayers effective. Prayer is only as powerful as the one you are praying to. If I go home and I pray to our dog, he has zero power to accomplish anything. Best case scenario, he might lick me in response to my prayer requests. Most likely, he's going to just stand there and wait for me to pet him because that's what he does. He's just a dog. Praying to my dog would be an exercise in futility. In the same way, if we think we're just praying into the sky, or if we're praying into an empty void, then we should have no expectation that our prayers would be heard or answered. But if we're praying to the sovereign king of the universe, who made all things and holds all things together by the power of his word, and also happens to be our heavenly father, then our expectation is much different. Listen, I know it's popular these days to disparage prayer, And to downplay its effectiveness on social media, prayer bashing is practically a sport at this point. But that should not be surprising because many, if not most on social media, don't believe that there is a God. Or if they do believe there is a God, they believe that he is weak and powerless and he cannot do anything. But as Christians, we know that's not true. We know that there is a God and that he is powerful and mighty. And we believe that he hears and answers prayers. 
Our prayers are powerful and effective, not because of our words, not because of our character. It's because of who we are praying to. So that's question three. Why is prayer powerful and effective? It's powerful and effective because of who we're praying to, the King of the universe, who is also our Heavenly Father. Question four, who should pray? Who should pray? Verse 14 is interesting here. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So verse 14 refers to elders here. Elders is an office in the church. It's an office that we have here. An office reserved for spiritually qualified men who are called to lead and shepherd the church. Now when we get to the final question of how we should pray for sick people, we'll return to the idea of how the elders here are to pray for those who are sick. But for now, my question regarding verse 14 and the instruction James gives is this. Do elders have a superpower in prayer that others do not possess? So if someone's sick, as an elder of the church, shall I ask everyone to step aside so that my super prayers can be heard? At home, if we're praying for someone, when the kids and Tani get done, should I tell them, well, it's nice of you commoners to pray, but now it's time for the super prayer to take over. Of course not. That's ludicrous, right? I think James is calling the elders to pray in verse 14 because they are spiritually mature and value prayer, but more importantly, because they represent the church. And that way, James is communicating something significant about the value of the church coming together to pray over sick people. Because it's clear in the rest of the passage, elders don't have some superpower. James has an expectation everyone would pray. In verse 16, he encourages believers to confess their sins to one another and pray for one another. More importantly, listen to the way the passage ends. Latter half of verse 16 through verse 18. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Now James knows that we might be tempted to hear that story about Elijah and think, well, of course God answered Elijah's prayers. He's a prophet. He's a super prayer. So he goes out of his way, James does here to remind us, no, Elijah was a man with a nature just like us. In other words, he's messed up like us too. And if you've read Elijah's story in 1 Kings, you know that this is true. Elijah did some amazing things, but he also gets depressed, he flees danger, he throws pity parties. He's just a guy, a guy like us. A guy with flaws and weaknesses and a sinful nature. And yet God heard his prayers and answered them. And James is encouraging us in this. God hears the prayers of normal people. When James talks in verse 16 about the prayer of a righteous person having great, great power, I don't think he's saying a person who's flawless or without sin, this is the person that God hears. No, rather, I think in verse 16 when he's talking about the righteous, he's simply talking about those who are believers in Jesus Christ. As Christians, we have the righteousness of Christ credited to our account because of the work of Jesus on the cross. In fact, this is one of the greatest good pieces of news there is in the gospel. That when we trust in Jesus, he takes the punishment for our sin and he gives us his righteousness. It's the great exchange. He takes our sin, our punishment for it. He gives us his righteousness. Which, by the way, if you've never taken advantage of that great exchange, turn to Christ today. That's the greatest good news there is. That you are a sinner, but Christ's righteousness can be given to your account. If you are a believer, then you are righteous. Furthermore, as believers, we also have the Holy Spirit. So every person then who's in Christ can boldly approach the throne of grace, expecting an answer because we are righteous in Jesus Christ and because we have the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be an elder. You don't have to be a prophet. You don't have to be a super prayer. You just have to know Jesus. 
And if you do, you can boldly and confidently and with great expectation approach the throne of grace to pray, knowing that your prayers have great power as they are working. So that's question four. Who should pray? And the answer is all of us who know Jesus should pray with confidence and boldness. There's one last question, though, and this is the question that brings us deepest into the swamp of complexity. And that last question is simply this. How should we pray for sick people? All right, verses 14 to 16 is the crux of the issue here. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, obviously, there's something interesting going on here with the oil and the elders in verse 14. But I would argue things get even more interesting in verse 15 when James pivots from a discussion of physical sickness and healing to the need for our sins to be forgiven. In doing so, he seems to be suggesting that sometimes when people are sick, they're sick because of their sin. And thus, they need to confess their sin as part of the healing process. That line of thinking seems to be confirmed when James tells the believers in verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins that you may be healed. So what is going on here? Is James suggesting that perhaps sometimes we get sick because of our sin? And if so, is he right to suggest that? Now, to answer those questions, I think the first answer is yes, he is suggesting that. But is he right? To answer that question, we need to step back and do some systematic theology here. By that I mean taking a topic in the Bible and synthesizing all the verses together and coming to a conclusion. So I think there's two questions we need to ask here. One, is all sickness a direct result of someone's personal sin? If the answer to that is yes, there is no second question. If the answer is no, the second question is, if not all sickness is a direct result of someone's personal sin, is some sickness connected to sin? All right, so let me just get the first one out of the way. The Bible, I think, is clear that not all sickness is a direct result of someone's personal sin. Now, sickness and death are a result of the fall, and in that way, they can be traced back to sin in a big picture sense. But just because a person is sick does not necessarily mean that they are sick as a result of their own personal sin. Job would be a great example of this. In the book of Job, Job's friends want to connect his sickness to his sin. But the context of the book is abundantly clear. Job was not sick because of his sin. God was doing something else in Job's sickness. Furthermore, in John chapter 9, Jesus directly tells us that a blind man was not blind because of his sin, but rather he was blind to display the works of God. So it would be a mistake and a dangerous one, I would argue, for us to assume all sickness is a result of someone's personal sin. But the second part of the question is this. If not all sickness is a result of sin, is some sickness potentially connected to personal sin? And I think the biblical answer to that question, whether we're comfortable with it or not, is Yes. In John chapter 5, Jesus tells a lame man to sin no more. He heals the lame man and then he says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Implied in that is this idea that if he goes back to a life of sin, he may be worse than he was before, physically and spiritually, I think. Mark 2, Jesus seems to connect illness and sin in the same way that James does here in this passage. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that some are weak and ill and some have even died. Because they've taken the Lord's Supper wrongly. Which, by the way, is a terrifying verse about the Lord's Supper. Some are sick, some are weak, some have died because they've taken the Lord's Supper wrongly. In other words, they're living in sin because of that. They're physically suffering. 
So it does appear then in Scripture that at least in some illnesses, certainly not all, and in fact, James would indicate that here. He says, if he's committed sin, that's what he says there at the end of verse 15. In some cases, not all, some illnesses are connected to sin. Now, I'm saying that, I know we're stepping into dangerous territory here. And the danger is that anyone who's sick might then become paralyzed by fear or guilt or shame that sin might be part of the cause. And here's where I'm just going to be gut-level honest with you guys. With two sick people in our house, we've asked the question quite a bit over the last four years, is there something that we have done? Or is there something that we are doing? Is there some sin that has led to this situation? But the more I've thought about that question over the last four years, and the more I've thought about this passage this week, I don't think that that is James's intent here. He doesn't want us to go on a sin hunt. He's not trying to get us to look for some hidden sin that we don't even know about. He's not trying to rack us with guilt. I don't think that's his intent here. What he's doing, though, is acknowledging in some cases sickness may be connected to sin. But what he's trying to really do is encourage us that if we confess our sin as part of the healing process, that too can be healed. And that way you could argue that he's emphasizing a very important reality here. Physical healing is of some value, but spiritual healing is even more important. Which brings us back now to the original question. How should we pray for those who are sick? And the answer, I think, is this. That we should pray for their physical healing, no doubt. But we should also pray for their spiritual healing. It's appropriate to call the elders as representatives of the church and have them pray for physical healing. And just to get this out of the way, I think the oil mentioned in verse 14 is simply a way of symbolizing a person is being set apart for God's special attention and care. I don't think there's a magic oil. I don't think there's something you need to buy on the internet that will heal you. I don't think that's what we're talking about here. I think we're just saying, let's set apart the person for prayer, and let's have an expectation that God will hear. And to do that, to pray for physical healing is good and appropriate. We should not forget that a person's greatest need is always spiritual. What good would it do to be physically healed while remaining spiritually sick? In the long run, no good. And so in light of James' teaching here in verses 14 to 16, I think the appropriate response to sickness is to pray for physical healing. But also, I would add, our response should also include confession of sin to one another, praying for one another, and aiming for a healing that is not just physical but spiritual too. So maybe to try to give a practical example, if you have an Aunt Fanny who has cancer, you should pray for her physical healing, but you should pray also for Aunt Fanny that she would see her sin as well, whether it's connected to the cancer or not, and pray that she would confess her sin and find spiritual healing also. So listen, I know that we're swimming in the deep end this morning as it relates to prayer, but that's appropriate because prayer is both beautifully simplistic and incredibly complex at the same time. So it's good for us to acknowledge some of the complexity here, but it's crucial that we do not lose sight of the simplicity. And so this morning, I just want to leave you with one simple reminder. Yes, I know prayer is complicated. I know there's a whole host of questions that we've addressed this morning. But here's your simple reminder this morning. In light of who God is, let's be a people that pray. In fact, let's pray now. Uh, God, we do thank you for the reminder here of the need to pray. And we acknowledge there are some really complex things happening in this passage. But Lord, help us to not lose sight of the overall big encouragement from this passage. And the encouragement is we should pray. We should pray. We should pray for suffering people. We should pray for those who are cheerful, giving thanks. 
We should pray for those who are sick. Pray for their physical and spiritual healing. We should pray for those who are caught in sin. God, help us to be a church. Help us to be a people that pray. That our first instinct in times of trouble is to run to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.